The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. Today, I'm joined by Brendan D'Souza of Dalgate Capital for a conversation with Andrew Austin, the founder and executive chairman of Kistos. Kistos is an aim-listed company established in November 2020 with the purpose of generating shareholder value in the energy sector. Kistos owns a number of assets in the Dutch sector of the North Sea, including the producing asset Q10A. It also has agreed to acquire a 20% interest in the West of Shetland gas asset Greater Lagom from Total. It has been estimated that these assets together will produce the equivalent of 13,000 barrels of oil per day of low-carbon gas. Andrew is an experienced entrepreneur in the field of energy, starting out in the solar sector in the early 2000s and then founding UK energy companies iGas and then Rockrose Energy. The latter delivered a 40-fold return to investors in its five-year life. In today's episode, Andrew discusses the changing nature of our energy supply mix, and in particular, the growing importance of locally sourced, low-carbon gas as a bridging fuel to take us to a fully renewable future. He also gives us some valuable insight into how to structure M&A deals in volatile pricing environments. We also learn his secret of staying closely in touch with his largest shareholder. Please enjoy our conversation with the Maverick, Andrew Austin. Could you start just by telling us a bit about your background and your journey to the formation of Kistos? I know you were previously in investment banking. Half my staff in um, Kistos weren't even born when I left investment banking. No, I, I left investment banking and joined the energy industry in the year 2000. And I ended up actually working renewable energy originally. I was building solar farms in California and manufacturing uh, solar panels in New Jersey. I've been involved in setting up a number of ventures, iGas, then Rockrose. Rockrose was quite a success for investors along the way. That was between 2015 and 2020. We sold that at the beginning of the pandemic, ironically. And that was a good story for investors. When that all closed, in September 2020, we set up Kistos in November of that year and then went on the search for more acquisitions. Have you always had a fascination with the world of energy? What brought you into this space and what were the common threads in this progression to where we are today? Energy is important to everyone and it's needed everywhere, whether it's from renewable sources or whether it's from hydrocarbons. Ironically, when you're selling gas or when you're selling electricity, you can't change the price at which you sell it. What you can change is the way in which you source it and how environmentally sensitively you source it, how cost-effectively you source it, how close to its consumption you source it, how much you can reduce the energy miles in what you do. All of those things interest me, and all of those things have been factors in each of those businesses. The whole ecosystem of how we source our energy has changed massively in that 20 years, dramatically so in the last few months, let alone the last few years. The local nature to it has become relevant again. A lot of countries, as a consequence of the dreadful events that have gone on in Ukraine, have suddenly become aware once more as to where their energy is coming from, and that's been relevant to them. 
and you're seeing changes in behaviour in governments across Europe as a consequence of that. Is it for you all about getting the assets at the right price? It's about getting the right assets at the right price. And you commented earlier on that I used to be an investment banker. I was a trader. My first ever job was on the floor of the London Stock Exchange back in 1984. You know, sometimes it's about buying the right assets that are going to be used by other people at the right price. And then they have the opportunity to move on in their genesis to be owned by somebody else at a later stage. And if that results in shareholders making money on the way through, then that's something that I'm not only aligned with, but supportive of. The opportunity for Kistos and the strategy of Kistos, is that a continuation of... There's a difference between where Kistos is and where Rockrose was, right? So Rockrose, there were a number of people who were specifically choosing to leave the North Sea and for their own strategic reasons and wanted out. That created opportunities in buying assets at prices that were right for the person selling, but left some food on the table for a smaller player like us to crystallize some value. And so that was the business plan of Rockrose, and it was very successful. We returned 42 times their money to shareholders. I think 13 million of equity went in and 297.5 million of shareholder returns came out within a four and a half year period. So that worked quite well for people. Having sold that, we looked back at that experience and tried to decide if and what to do next. It became apparent that particularly in a public company context, that the sustainability of where we stand was really, really important. Yeah. So gas, not oil, low carbon footprint, not Um, old legacy assets was what we were going to focus on. And that's how we've built Kistos today. So the acquisitions in the Netherlands, that basically is some of the lowest carbon production facilities probably anywhere in the world. Our acquisition, which is in the process of closing right now, subsea tiebacks, not big platforms, not loads of people offshore. Again, a good carbon position, a good story in terms of where those assets sit, that they're part of the future rather than being part of legacy developments of the past. A number of investors are coming back into the energy space because they're seeing on their TVs each night how important energy is and how it's affecting the geopolitics and then saying, okay, if we're going to put any money into hydrocarbon producers, it needs to be into people with a really low carbon footprint. It needs to be in people who are delivering that energy close to home, close to the markets where it's going to be consumed in stable places. And then your number one pick on that basis is Kistos. Have you noticed a change of stance? Has there been more engagement from government in recent weeks? And how has that response, if there has been one, varied between the UK and the uh, Dutch government? We obviously monitor the feedback that we get from them and policy statements, et cetera, et cetera, that are made and press coverage, et cetera. We're probably still considered too small to be part of that immediate engagement level, but that's fine. I don't mind that. What we have seen in the UK is some changes in policy position on things like Cambo, And I think that's quite significant. So, you know, in the run-up to COP26, Cambo, government not supportive of it going forward, Shell pulling back, et cetera. Now, 
Cambo going forward, Shell back in the room, and Sicker Point, the operators of Cambo, being sold to Ithaca for one and a half billion or so. So clearly that's very much back on the radar. So that and the North Sea Transition Authority saying that they're coming back out with a licensing round to again look at developments that could be made within the UK North Sea, but with very much an eye to making sure that that's done in as low a carbon way as possible and as a sustainable way as possible. So I think we've returned to a degree of pragmatism about the importance of domestically sourced energy and the role of at least gas in that sustainable position as a bridging fuel through to an entirely renewable future. How quickly do you think Europe can wean itself off Russian energy? It depends how far east and west you are. Yeah. Russian energy permeates very, very deeply into some of the Eastern European economies. And I think the FT had a, a useful chart on this the other day and where it basically showed the percentage reliance on Russian gas. And when you look at places like Bulgaria, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and on up towards Poland, it's very high. You're seeing it in the price performance in the UK and in Spain and to a lesser extent in France right now, that those countries that can import LNG from the rest of the world, like the UK can, have actually got significantly lower day-ahead gas prices than the TTF price, which is a sort of general benchmark across Europe. You know, you've had a divergence of national balancing point price gas and Dutch TTF price gas larger than has ever been seen. I mean, in the last five or 10 years, you've not seen that really diverge more than five or 6%. And it's now about 35%, which is just due to gas being able to come into the Western Atlantic facing countries. So the world's changing. And I think it's also worth bearing in mind that the gas price went up before war in Ukraine was declared or possibly even thought about. The really high prices we saw were actually in November and December. And this goes back to a lack of investment in gas over a period of time, which has starved companies and therefore economies of gas replacement, replacement of reserves. And that's caught up with the industry, frankly. And then put on top of that, the events in Ukraine and, you know, significant weakness in the system has been revealed. And also, you're now seeing this sort of rebalancing of the countries like the UK that can actually bring gas in. And those like some of those in Central Europe that can't without reliance on Russia. So how far do you see this reversal of priorities going? I mean, could you imagine there being fracking in the UK? That's a bus I've travelled on many times. I don't see that happening, to be honest. I think that a lot of the domestic and local concerns that were an issue eight, nine years ago remain an issue, and I think that would be quite difficult. You know, in the Netherlands, there's an interesting situation as to whether or not they reopen Groningen. And that's not about building new well stock. That's about opening up existing well stock. And I think that's a debate that is for the local communities in those areas. But it's potentially a very rewarding one for the Dutch economy in leading a path away from Russian gas. But 
I do see an increasing willingness for clean developments. The kind of things that we've done at Q10A, platforms that are normally unmanned, they're accessed by ship, not by helicopter, they're energy source on the platform is wind and solar, not local diesel generators. This is the kind of model for gas production as a bridging fuel that I think Europe needs and is enthusiastic about now in this environment we find ourselves in. So do you think in this environment we can see a further decoupling of oil from natural gas pricing, from oil prices from natural gas pricing, which we seem to have Well, I mean, we've had a massive shift. We were sitting in a place where typically on a BOE basis, you sat at a 30% discount. You then went to a 300% premium. We, when we set up Kistos, were anticipating a convergence of the pricing of the two. We obviously didn't see the massive outperformance of gas that we've now experienced, particularly in terms of European gas. But, you know, we did see that Gas has a role, and oil increasingly has a role as a petrochemical industry feedstock rather than something that's burnt. And I think that's a progression we're going to continue to see. So I see both oil and gas continuing to trade higher than they have done for a period of time, but trading at much closer metrics than they have done for some considerable period. So Kistos was set up as a vehicle to acquire and repurpose, as I understand it, previously owned, but maybe unloved assets? Yeah, it's probably more of the Rockrose strategy was unloved assets. In Kistos's case, the purpose for Kistos is very much one of let's find gas assets in stable places, stable environments, close to infrastructure, close to markets, and be involved in, if required, the development of those, but enjoying the benefits of being accessing gas rather than accessing oil and that forming that transition. And if that also means we look at other infrastructure, we look at gas storage infrastructure, we look at energy infrastructure more widely, then that's something we will talk about. But today you've announced two transactions, two deals. Can you just talk a bit about how you originated those deals and what the opportunities they present for you over the sort of medium term? Well, obviously, as a team, we've done probably more transactions in the last five or six years than most people. And as a result, you know, we're in contact with a lot of the buyers and sellers of assets and also their advisors. So we continue to keep those networks open and keep reviewing things. And at any point in time, we're reviewing four or five different data rooms and different acquisitions. So that's where they come from. I think we've already talked a little bit about the kind of things we're looking for in transactions. So we're looking for a low carbon footprint. We're looking predominantly for gas. If it is oil, then we're looking for oil with a very low carbon position. We're looking for good quality operators or operating it ourselves. And we're looking for things close to home and in stable regimes. Just about going for assets which have got a low carbon footprint, is this a key ESG consideration when you're acquiring assets, I wonder? Yeah, it's one of the earliest questions we ask in any due diligence we're carrying out is, what's the carbon footprint of these assets? And the reason for this is because, okay, we've had such a volatile gas market over the last six months that 
you know, the noise associated with the carbon attributable to those gas assets has been outweighed. But we were having conversations with large utilities immediately before this big rally in the gas price about how much they were prepared to pay over and above the prevailing gas price for gas that had a demonstrable low scope one and scope two emission position. Because if they're selling that gas on to consumers who are trying to get to a net zero position, then starting with gas that had a low carbon footprint meant that the job of those consumers would be lower. And therefore, that gas is potentially more valuable. Just with regards to what Jeremy and we've been discussing, you know, the whole Russian invasion of Ukraine, has this meant that, you know, assets that are low carbon footprint, has this pushed the price up of the assets? Or is it too early to say? I don't think you've had a long enough period where you can say that. I think what it has done is it's increased interest in gas assets, but it's certainly impacted the value of assets with geography close to markets. I think there you've seen a difference. But to say where the carbon position sits, I don't think you can say that yet. We're not there yet. The consequence of what's gone on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, obviously horrific implications for the local community and also the Russian conscripts that have been involved. This has pushed people back to a local agenda. So people are now much more concerned about where their gas and oil comes from. And they want to know that it comes from somewhere that's stable and that they can rely on. And that feeds right through into the pricing of renewable assets and the pricing of gas assets and ultimately the pricing of oil assets. Has it completely changed how inward investors look at it? No, not necessarily. It just means that there was a lot of focus immediately beforehand on we've just got to do renewables. We've just got to do things that are zero carbon. And the way in which the market is now looking at it is saying, oh dear, we missed a bit of time here where we didn't continue to invest in gas as a transition fuel. And as a result of that, we're now gas short. Let's just make sure that we don't get ourselves in that position again and get ourselves in a position where we're relying on legacy nations like Russia to supply that gas as the transition through to a solar and a wind and a wave renewable future. It's opened up the gap in investment that happened over the last two to three years in gas infrastructure. We started seeing that in the back end of last year. It then got amplified by the events in Ukraine. And now we are having to look at what that means for consumers across Europe. The situation for consumers in the UK is bad. The situation for consumers across the rest of Europe is significantly worse. Can you just give an overview of the scope for future acquisition opportunities that you think are, are out there? And are you only looking at revenue producing assets or and I just really wanted to get a sense of how you think about and value exploration potential in some of these assets that might be out there? One of the important things right now is making sure that neither side of a transaction looks silly within two or three weeks of doing a deal. So because the gas price has been as volatile as it has, one of the difficulties is basically saying, 
okay, I'm going to go and bid for this now. I'm going to put my line in the sand that I'm going to bid for XYZ asset at a hundred million. And then either the gas price goes through the roof and you look like a hero and the guy that's selling it to you looks like an idiot and therefore tries to pull out of the deal or the gas price goes completely south and you look like an idiot and he looks like a hero and then you're trying to work out if there's any means of you pulling out of the deal. I think what you need to do at the moment is work out ways to share that risk over a period of time with contingent payments and things like this so that the right progression of assets from one group of owners to another group of owners can happen without it all being about I won, he lost kind of argument. Expression isn't really our bailiwick. You know, we are about appraisal and about development and about production and about good stewardship in ownership. Those are the things we're focusing on. We're not building the value of our company on the basis of the drill bit, particularly it does or it doesn't work expiration situations, but rather through good stewardship of the assets and good and prudent acquisition and disposal um, approach to our asset base. Andrew, as part of the preparation for this, I was looking through the research that your broker produces for you. I noticed that they've got an outlook for a $65 oil price, which I think looks sort of in the ballpark for most commentators. But on that basis, Kistos seems to be trading on next year's earnings multiple of certainly less than two, which is remarkable. I mean, it's, I don't think it's unique to Kistos, but as a generalist rather than a specialist in this area, is this indicative of the volatile nature of oil and gas? Is it the short maturity of the assets? Or is it that people just don't recognize this as an area for investment activity for whatever reason? I think it's a combination of all of the above. So let's start at the back of that list this time. So they don't recognize it. Clearly, for historical reasons, there's been less investment recently in hydrocarbon-producing companies. I think you can also argue our weighted average cost of capital is higher than other companies. We borrow money at higher rates, et cetera, et cetera. That pushes cost of capital up, which ultimately forces our valuations down. And I think one of the other problems is that people look at our companies, and this isn't specific to, to Kistos, this is true across the piece, really. They look at them as projects and they say, okay, so you're making several hundred million euros this year, and next year you'll make a couple of hundred million euros less, and the year after you'll make less than that. So where's the growth? You know, this is not the same as investing in Amazon or Fevertree or whatever it is. And I think they're missing a trick because actually it comes down to the management's ability to replace those assets. So if I'm a retail store and I don't continue to invest in my shop front, I become Debenhams and I'm dead. So I can look at how much money I earn each year and I can see it declining until I continue to reinvest. And actually the same thing applies if you're I don't know, fever tree. And you say, well, actually, I've got a brand and I've got a brand position. But if I don't continue to invest in that brand and I'm the tonic of choice at Queen's and at Wimbledon, then my position is going to continue to decline. And the same actually applies to an oil and gas company. 
if we don't continue to invest, if we don't continue to do acquisitions, if we don't continue to do infill drilling, et cetera, et cetera, despite the fact we can't affect the price at which we sell our products, we can affect how much product we put out there for the market that absorbs it. And it's probably short-sighted of the markets to not see that if you've got the right management team who can continue to replace those assets and to take the store analogy, refit the store, or to take the luxury product analogy to promote that product in the right place, in the right way, they can be on much, much higher growth profiles than looking at it as Kistos have one asset in the Netherlands and they might be buying something else in the west of Shell and it's just going to be a decline curve. So what you're saying is the market isn't valuing your ability to replicate what you've already got. We have actually got a track record of doing it and continuing to do it. So, you know, judge us on our performance. You're obviously a small team, but it would appear that the team ethos and culture are important to you. What are the secrets behind building a winning team? The real keys to that is having people that all respect each other and respect each other's judgment and opinions and can challenge each other. And however much, whether someone owns 0.1 of 1% or 20% of the company, that they can turn around and challenge and say, I think you're talking nonsense. I don't think that's a good deal for the business. And we have that kind of team because we've worked together and it's been tried by fire over a period of a number of years. So have you had examples with this current team where you've been challenged on something that you'd wanted to do and someone has said, you know what, Andrew, this isn't the right thing? Yeah, daily. And vice versa. Yeah, that's not the right thing to do. Let's go about it this way. We talk about it. We work it out. So it's not a personality cult. It's a dynamic team of people who can make things happen and have managed over a considerable period of time to continue doing that with demonstrable results in the market. On M&A, Andrew, I'm just curious as to how many assets do you and the team have a look at, maybe on a monthly basis, and what kind of discipline do you have when you look at at the M&A? Do you have like maybe 10 points that need to be met or something like that internally when you look at things? There's no scorecard or anything like that. It depends. You know, sometimes we look at things very briefly and we look at them for a longer period of time. So you can't say, well, we'll look at three things this month. It doesn't kind of work like that. But there is no internal scorecard. What there is is a series of experience-based approaches which say, this is the kind of thing that's going to work for us. These are red flags that we're concerned about. If we've got the right skills internally to look at it, we'll do it. If we need to employ external contractors, we do that as well and do that on a regular basis. I was speaking to a company that has assets in the US and they were saying that, and I'm wondering whether this is the same dynamic over your UK slash Europe, they were saying that because gas prices has gone up, it's actually bought more assets onto the market for sale. Is that something you're seeing in UK and Europe too? I wouldn't say it's brought more assets onto the market, certainly not revenue-producing assets. It's brought a lot of projects which have basically been unbackable for a long period of time. And people have just dusted them off the shelf and said, oh, well, come on, this must work now. The um, gas price has gone up so much. And the answer is, well, if you didn't think you could get the gas out of the reservoir five years ago at 20 euros a megawatt hour, 
then the fact that it's now trading at 100 isn't going to help you get the gas out of the ground. It might help if you do get the gas out of the ground, but doesn't actually improve the practical feasibility of the project. So there may be more dreams out there. That doesn't mean to say there are more things that you can necessarily back. You've got a really good uh, shareholder register. I'm presuming some of them have been in uh, previous companies that you've been very successful with your past two ventures. I'm just wondering, what do shareholders want in this venture from uh, increasing share price 40 odd times? But are they looking at basically giving you a number of years to build out the assets? Or is this something that you know they hope is going to be acquired in the next couple of years? What's the whole kind of rationale for backing you on this third one? I can probably talk best from the position of one of the largest shareholders, I met him earlier on. That was me uh, when I looked in the mirror. <laughs> How's he doing? He's doing all right. He's looking a bit fat, a little bit old, and a little bit grey, but he's okay. And his view of life is that you run a business for the shareholders and for increasing shareholder value. If that means that the company gets sold when someone walks in one day and says, this is something I want, then great. But you make the right decisions for shareholders to increase their value. You do not run a business to sell it. If you run a business to sell it, it will fail because you'll constantly be saying, oh, shit, no one's actually bought it yet. And that will become a problem. So that old fat gray shareholder, I think, actually shares his views with a number of the other shareholders that are on the register. And they tend to think, do you know what? Let's just build the value from the bottom up. If that means someone walks in one day and buys it, great. If that means we generate cash, which means we can return it to shareholders, that's great. And that's the way in which we want to go. But run it for accretion of shareholder value while responsibly doing things that you can go home at night and turn around to your kids and say, yeah, I had a good day today. I did something good for the world. That's what makes me happy. You've obviously built up a strong track record, a great shareholder base, and a strong team of people around you. Is its duration based on the time frame that you're going to be active? I'm not that old. I didn't say, I, I, I didn't make any comment. I just, you know, it, we could be talking 50 years. I mean, I would imagine you're not going to be like Warren Buffett and be doing this when you're 96 or 91 or whatever it is he is. Charlie Munger's 96. We're here to do the right thing by the shareholders right now, and we continue to find opportunities where we think we can enhance money for shareholders, and that includes me. And while we can continue to do that and add value, we'll continue to do so. With regards to your future assets and future growth strategy, is there still a lot to go after in UK and Europe, or would you need to branch out or if the right assets come outside of UK and Europe, would you go out of this, this kind of geography? No, we're primarily focused on the UK and Europe. And that goes back to comments I made earlier on about being close to home and close to markets. So that's our focus. If you're looking back in 50 years' time, how would you assess the energy transition to date that we're at in 2022? How many marks out of 10 would you give us? We've got the right intentions. Sometimes... In running a marathon, we probably run a bit too quick on the first few miles. And in terms of fiscal stimulus and things like that, we probably put too much emphasis into the ultimate goal without bearing in mind what we need to do to get there. And by that, I mean underestimating the role of gas in transition, which is kind of 
what we've built Kistos around. And I hope for my children's sake that we get there. But we're only going to get there if we embrace gas as the transition, in my mind. Do you have a view on nuclear in that transition? Yeah, I think nuclear is important, but I think nobody can do it at the right price right now. The timing of what you've done with the Tulip acquisition and the structure of the Total acquisition west of Shetland seems to put you in an amazingly strong position and one that if you can convince the market it can be replicated, in my humble opinion, is nowhere nearly reflected in the valuation of your business today. I don't think the market has valued our acquisition of the assets or our partnership with Total at all, to be honest. I just don't think the market's counted that into the numbers. I think our valuation is probably supported on our Dutch assets alone. You know, and the sheer fact that we've been able to double the size of the business and pay back all our debt within less than two years of founding the business is, it's a function of the extraordinary position we find ourselves in terms of gas price. I'm not saying it's due to exceptional management. I just think we've been fortunate, but as Napoleon says, sometimes you need lucky generals. And, you know, we've been some lucky generals and we continue to find the best ways to work that balance sheet on behalf of our shareholders. What do you worry about? What keeps you up at night? What do you tell your team to watch out for, for you? Basically, making sure we do everything on an honourable basis and we continue to do right by every stakeholder in the business, making sure that we can all go home and turn around to our families and say, we did something good today, and making sure that we continue to keep the trust of our shareholders by remembering that we're custodians of their hard-earned pounds and dollars and euros, and they've entrusted them to us, and it's our job to treat them respectfully and give them the returns that those hard-earned dollars and euros and pounds deserve. My wrap-up question that I've asked everybody is, the journey that you've been on, what have you changed your mind about? Do you view the world differently in this past 20 years? In the past 20 years, I didn't expect us to see war in Europe again. And I'm very sad that that's the case. I didn't expect to see inflation hitting 10% again. Being a boy that grew up in the 80s with 16% interest rates, I'm uh, surprised to see that. But overall, we probably see a more equitable society. We probably see one where there's a lot of opportunity and we look to develop any young people we see coming into the business to give them the opportunities that those old blokes like myself have had along the way to grow and continue to play an active part in the role of energy in everyone's future. Andrew, thank you for sharing your time with us today. I found our conversation fascinating and informative, and I will follow the progress of Kistos in the future with great interest. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes.